Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, good morning, Anchor. How are we doing, 1030? We're doing good? We're doing good. Oh, man. Uh, I love you guys because I was not one of you before I was a pastor. You guys are the people who came on Easter and then came back the next week. And we are, we are grateful for that. Um, Rose and I have a, have a long history with church, and we were definitely those church people who like came in, we're like, okay, we did our once a month at Easter, and now we're back. Um, but we are really excited that you guys are back this week. Um, I like to pretend, um, by the way, if we haven't met yet, I'm John, executive pastor here at Anchor. You heard me talk about this teaching series um, at Easter. And so I like to pretend that you guys are all back here this week uh, because you heard what this teaching series is about. I did an amazing job pitching it to you, and you're like, I'm in on that. Um, see, okay, we have like three people here. That helps me. Um, but here's, here's the truth about this series. Like, I have been so excited for this teaching series since we sat down as a staff over a year ago and planned it out. I think that the concept of real religion is a compelling concept in a lot of eras, but I think especially right now today, it is particularly compelling. Um, if you have been online in the last two years, you have seen a lot of news stories, articles, podcasts, blogs, substacks, whatever, uh, about religion done poorly. Uh, As someone who works for a church, I've probably gotten a higher than normal volume of those in my text messages uh, from friends inside the church, outside the church. John, did you see this? Another church did something crazy. Um, Maybe you've gotten text messages like that as well. And and so we've seen in our culture and in our news, story after story after story of churches, especially churches in this country, doing things like caring more about the image they project than the faith that they have. Hearing more about political influence than what we would call kingdom influence. Caring more about allowing the ministry of the church to continue than properly addressing scandals or abuse. Caring more about personal reputation of a leader than the reputation of the church. And so if I'm honest, when I hear one of those stories, when I see one of those blogs, when I choose to listen to a podcast about those types of things, I go through really like a three-stage process on this where I feel different things. And the first thing I feel is I feel outrage. I am not alone in this. As a culture, we are addicted to outrage. I remember six years ago, the New York Times had an article where it said, as a culture, we have an addiction to outrage and it is a problem. And then over the last six months, we've seen stories come out as things have leaked from inside tech companies and become public that said, actually, we are monetizing outrage. Why are we monetizing outrage? It's not that we're interested in outrage. It's that we know if we get enough people outraged, they're going to spend more time on our platforms. They're going to click on more things on our platforms, and we're going to get more money. It's that that simple. And so we are addicted to outrage. And if I'm honest, I'm not immune from that. Sometimes I'm one of the worst offenders. And so I'll read these stories about a church in our country, and I will feel outrage. And sometimes it feels performative, if I'm honest, right? Because that's where we are as a culture. I do want to say this. There's a difference between righteous anger and outrage. There are some situations that require righteous anger, but I think a lot of times we're just feeling outrage instead of righteous anger. I know I am. Once I get past that, though, the next thing that I feel is sadness, 
See, sometimes these churches, I've had friends that have been a part of these churches who have had just their lives turned upside down by a pastor or by a leader who made a mistake and didn't own up to it. And those are real people with real stories and real hurts. And that, that's hard. I also know what it's like to, to work at a church in an area where another church does something wrong publicly, doesn't acknowledge it, and then it's really hard to talk to your neighbor and say, hey, come to church. We're not that church, but we're this church, right? It's hard. And so I'm sad. But then when I get through, through the sadness, I get to another, my final response when I read stories about the brokenness in other churches that I like to call not my church. My final response is to say, like, that's not Anchor. It's not my church. Anchor is different. And on a, on, a, on a very factual level, that is true, right? Like, Anchor, praise God, has not ended up in the news. Anchor, for bad things. Um, Anchor has not been, you know, passed around in, in blogs or podcasts. But here's the thing. Anchor's not my church either. Like, it's not Brian's church. It's not John's church. It's Jesus' church. And here's the thing that I don't like is I got on this stage like two months ago and I said, actually, all the churches are Jesus's church. And Jesus says that everyone who says yes to him is in this really awesome building of which he is the cornerstone. And while there are churches that I might say, hey, they have not addressed their brokenness, like I don't get to say that they're not part of Jesus's church. Have you ever been remodeling your house and there's a room and you're like, we don't let guests go into that room, but you're also like, that's still your house. Like, you're working, but it's still your house. You don't get to, like, disown ownership of it that way. And if I'm honest, I say not my church too often, not because I'm so proud of who Anchor is. And trust me, I'm really proud of this community. I am so lucky to be a part of this community. But that's not why I say it. I say it in a way of saying, well, I could never be like that. I could never be broken like that. And when you start to look at other people's brokenness, and say, I could never be broken like that? That sounds an awful lot like pride, doesn't it? And so it's something we've wrestled with as a leadership team here at Anchor. What do we do when we see these stories? What do we do when we see this brokenness inside the American church that we can't disown? We're a part of it. What do we do when we see brokenness in other churches? What do we do when we see brokenness in our church? What do we see when we see brokenness in the city? And, and that's another reality, right? The pandemic over the last couple of years, it has shined a magnifying glass on brokenness that has existed in this city for a long time. Tacoma has dealt with housing insecurity for a long time. The magnifying glass, huge issue, right? People in this city have been turning to substances and alcohol to deal with their problems for a really long time. And again, the last two years shown a light on that. Families are on the edge. Marriages have been on the brink for a long time in the city that we love and call home. And again, the pandemic just shown a big magnifying glass on that. If you walk down the streets of the city that I love and I think is one of the best, like I, I'm weird, I think Tacoma is probably one of the best places in the world you could ever live. Like I legitimately believe that. But you also walk down the streets or drive down the streets and you're like, this is, like there are broken people who need hope and healing. And so what do we do with that? And here's, here's where our leadership team landed. And this is not a like prescription for all churches and all times. This is like, hey, here's what Anchor's leadership team has decided we're going to do in response to seeing all that brokenness. We're gonna take what we're calling a prophetic posture. A prophetic posture. Um, I can't control what other churches do. I get to help play a role in what we do as a church. 
And so rather than worry about what I can't control, we're going to focus on our own posture in this season. Uh, Isaiah 58 is going to end up being the key text for this series. Um, For those of you that don't know, Isaiah wrote this book called Isaiah in the Old Testament. He was a prophet like many of the writers in the Old Testament. We're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 58. But today, we're going to do an overview of who are the prophets, what are they doing, um, and why is Anchor saying in this season we're going to take what we call this prophetic posture. So prophets are key figures in our understanding of what it means to be a follower of God. Prophets were those who both foretold and foretold, right? They, they weren't just these end times forecasters. Uh, they were also advocates and activists for the poor. They were artists. They were poets. They were diligent students of scripture. They pointed towards a future hope and blessing while also calling people who were content to live in brokenness back to repentance. And the prophets started first and foremost with church people when they did that. They would point towards a future hope and blessing, but they would also say, hey, it's not okay to just willingly live in your own brokenness. And so when the people of God and scripture have been faced with overwhelming brokenness, both inside and outside of the church, God has consistently used the voice of prophets to show people the way forward. So that's why prophetic, right? But but why posture? Uh, We believe this, that there are certain postures or stances that are required for certain seasons of life or activities. Um, I just had the mixed bag of uh, having my six-year-old and four-year-old do their first t-ball game of the year yesterday. (laughs) Six-year-old did great because he's done it before. Uh, Four-year-old, though, sweet Aria, um, it was a roller coaster. Really excited, really scared. I was like, yeah, I feel that. Um, But one of the things that I was working with Aria out in the field is, is probably something you remember from the first PE class that you did or the first sports team that you were on where a coach or an adult who was told they were a coach uh, would come up to you and say, hey, you need to get your feet shoulder width apart and and kind of be on the balls of your feet. I remember being like a six-year-old, I don't know what the balls of my feet are. Is that the toes or the heels? I don't, so I would shift a lot. Um... Right, and we would say like this good ready position is good for most situations, circumstances that you'd find yourself in as an athlete. But even as an athlete, right, there's a different posture required in different situations. A friend of mine played football. I never played football because I would die. But a friend of mine played football and he was telling me, he's like, yeah, the ready position is good. But he was a, he was a, a safety or a linebacker because they kind of switch in high school football. Um, and, and he would say, man, John, there is that ready position. He goes, but let me tell you, that last game of the season, we're on defense, we're up six points, balls on the eight-yard line, and we know it's fourth down. If we stop them, we win the game. He goes, that's a different posture. It's a very different, I can't do it, I don't play football. Um, we're not demonstrating. But like, it's a different posture, right? Uh, in the military, we know that there are different postures for different situations. There's one for when you're at attention, there's another for at ease, and, and that, those differences happen a lot because the military is just hurry up and wait. Uh, there's different postures where you're in a, in a combat situation or a situation where you need to be aware. There are different postures for different situations. Uh, there's a friend of mine who went to college with me and, and was getting ready for graduation, and I saw him looking at himself in a mirror, kind of adjusting. I was like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm the first kid in my family to graduate from college. He goes, I want to make sure when I walk across that stage, I look so proud of what my family's done. So he stood up a little bit straighter. He pulled his shoulders back. He held his head up high because he knew what walking across that stage meant for him and for the legacy that he was trying to build as a part of his family. There are different postures for different situations. So at Anchor, we feel that there's a stance that we need to take in this moment. And again, this isn't prescriptive for everyone. This is where we are as a church 
And we think that we need, when faced with brokenness, to take this prophetic stance. And it's not an entrenched stance, it's not an angry stance, but it's also not compromising. And so we're calling it this prophetic one. So that's why we're calling it a prophetic posture. That's what's gonna happen as we look at Isaiah 58. But today we want to take some time and kind of talk through like, what is a part of that prophetic posture? When we look at the prophets as a whole, what do we see them do? So the first thing that we see is this, is that they have confident faith. They have confident faith. And a confident faith actually starts here. It doesn't start with God, it starts with me. A confident faith starts by looking inward. And it's interesting, a confident faith doesn't start by looking inward and being confident in yourself, in your great qualities. It doesn't say, oh, look at me. We actually see in the prophets, confident faith starts by looking inward at our own brokenness. And confident faith starts by these prophets saying, look at how unsuitable I am. Look at how unusable I am in the midst of what God has called me to do. Isaiah does this in chapter six. He says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is interesting. Isaiah has just been told by God he's going to use his mouth, his words, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to bring glory to the kingdom of God. And he looks at who God is because he's seen who God is and he goes, I can't. I look at myself, God, and I can't. Jeremiah is very young and is called into service by God at a young age. And in 1.6 of Jeremiah, it says this, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. I am too young. If you've ever felt inadequate or unable to do what God has called you to do, I hope you look at the voice of the prophets and know you are not alone. I actually say this, that when we are honest about our own brokenness, when we are honest about our own weaknesses, our faith grows because we know we have to rely on God. You see, without an honest look inward, it's really easy for prophets to become angry idealists who only serve their own ego. We have to look inward at our own brokenness. When we do that, it actually brings what we call a reverent trust in God. You see, without trusting in God, we might see problems, but then try to short-circuit the solution. I think it's really easy to trust institutions of the day, even religious institutions of the day, even good religious institutions of the day, more than it is to trust God. We fall into that trap. One of the things that I love about um, looking at Paul's writings in the New Testament, we take a lot from Paul and what it means for churches. Um, Andy Stanley, who's a pastor down in Atlanta, said this the other day. He said the amazing thing about Paul's writings and why they're still so relevant to the church today is he did not fall into the trap of following any of those institutions. He didn't fall in line with empire. He didn't fall in line with temple or any of the local religions or priesthoods of his day. He focused on Jesus. He focused on Jesus. It's so important that when we are looking at our faith to look first and foremost at God. The prophets did this by having what we call a firm grasp of scripture. If you have a paper Bible or you have your Bible app out, you'll notice as you look at the verses that they have little numbers under them sometimes or little links under them sometimes. And I remember growing up in the church and reading in Isaiah and then I saw a little number and then it said Deuteronomy something. I was like, this is, what is this? What it is is this, it's the prophet Isaiah was referencing scripture that he saw in Deuteronomy. A good example of that that we can share today is Deuteronomy 4.35 says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. And then Isaiah in chapter 45.18 says, turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I love that Isaiah is using scripture 
As a kid who grew up in the church and felt like sometimes if I was going to share scripture with someone, I had to get it word for word exact in the New King James Version that I learned growing up uh, in Sunday school, isn't it encouraging to look at that and go, oh, he didn't say it right. Like he didn't use the exact right words. And God's okay with that. Like, I have felt so often in my life, like, if I don't share this verse exactly word for word, then somehow I'm doing God or the Bible a disservice. And I realized, like, way too late in my life, but, like, I realized God just wants you to share his word. And, like, God and the Bible are strong enough to handle when we mess up the words or even when we tweak it a little bit for the audience like Isaiah does here. He is referencing God. He doesn't say the Bible says this. Like, we gotta be careful with our words. But, like, I just, I think the important thing is that we know Scripture, that we rely on Scripture, and God has instances of people using Scripture to convey truth, and they don't get it word perfect, and that's okay. Like, that's okay. And so I just, I don't want you to be afraid to share truths that you've learned in the Scripture because you don't know the words every single time, word by word. The prophets didn't feel bound by that, and God put it in the Bible, right? Like, if he was upset by this, he wouldn't have put it in the Bible, I think that's so cool. Something else that we see, Isaiah leans on Deuteronomy a lot. Uh, Deuteronomy is actually the second time in Scripture that we get the Ten Commandments. Uh, The first time it's in Exodus, Deuteronomy is the second time. And Deuteronomy's presentation of the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, it's all around the area of justice. In Isaiah 58, when it talks about Sabbath and it references back to Deuteronomy, man, you'll see it when we get to the end of the teaching today, it is all about justice. It's so important to have a firm grasp of scripture because otherwise we don't know where our prophetic conviction is coming from, whether it's from us or from God. One of the prophets, Jeremiah, who just referenced, said this. He's like, sometimes you can't trust your own heart. I felt that, right? Like, as a teenager, I was in love like 40 times, (laughs) right? Like, we can't trust our own hearts sometimes, and the prophet knows that. And so there's a question that goes, if I feel something, if I feel a conviction, how do I know if that's from me or from God? And Isaiah and the prophets, they're saying we are rooted in Scripture. And if you know Scripture well, you're going to know, oh, that's, that's actually just what John wants. Or, yes, that is a calling from God. You see, when we don't root our prophetic convictions in Scripture, like, that's how we get, like, weird church. That's cults. Like, that's how that happens, is people are like, God told me this, and they don't check it with anything, We have to have a firm grasp of scripture when we are talking about our prophetic convictions. Uh, Second thing that we see in this prophetic posture is courage in the face of power. How many of you guys have ever faced down a bully? Okay, thank you. You're my people. Like 20 people raised their hands at nine o'clock. I was like, either y'all are lying or I needed you in elementary school. Um, I had plenty of opportunities to face down bullies in elementary school. I was a year ahead for my age, and my dad is five feet two in shoes. Um, And so I was not wired uh, to be the bully. I was wired to be bullied. Um, And uh, I did not face down bullies. I would love to tell you it's because first grade John was a pacifist. First grade John was a realist. I realized if I try to face, I am not built for physical violence. This ends poorly if John, right? So like I, um, I just kind of got through life for a while. But I remember in fifth grade, fifth grade, I had a showdown. Ian, don't know where you are today. Hope you are a kind person. Um, Ian was not a kind fifth grader. And Ian had been pestering me and bullying me and harassing me all year long. 
I remember it was a sunny April day. It was third recess. We got three recesses back then. Um, and he was doing it again. He was just pastoring me. And I finally said, enough is enough. And I stood up to him. And it was a really great moment for like a minute. <laughs> and then it devolved into a fist fight. And I held my own. I want that known. All, uh, an unfortunate reality is my mom was a substitute teacher for my elementary school and got to see me and my bully walked ourselves down to the principal's office. <laughs> um, I, if you've ever been a parent and you've been kind of proud and also disappointed at the same time, that was my mom's face in that moment. <laughs> She's like, proud of you for standing up. Did you hit him? Yes, I hit him. Okay. Um, right? That doesn't happen very often in our life. Right? We had like three hands up when I was like, who's ever shown down a bully? But the prophets, we see the prophets have courage in the face of earthly power time and time and time again. And so when I was prepping for this message, I was like, man, maybe the prophets were just like normally courageous people and that's why God used them. And then I looked in like two minutes, I was like, well, they hid in a cave and he, he ran away on a boat. So they're probably not naturally courageous. So what is it? What is it about the prophets that gives them this conviction to show up in the face of power? I think it's this, it's what scripture calls the fear of God. You see, and the fear of God is not what we would normally associate fear with, right? It's not like a horror movie type fear. It's not like a, a jump scare type fear. It's not a like overwhelming, things are gonna get me type fear. Um, sometimes it is that classical fear. We see that again with Jonah. Jonah was eaten by a whale, right? Like, so there's probably some classical fear of God for him. But for the other prophets, we think that fear of God is more what we see in scripture where they are in a spot and they're going, I know who God is. I've seen how big and how powerful God is. And when I see and look how big and how powerful and how awesome God is, the things on earth that seem scary don't anymore. As we see this time and time again with the prophets is that fear of God chases out the fear of man. Elijah has a showdown with these false priests that has very real consequence. Like he gambles and says, God's gonna show up. And God does. Daniel has a moment where the king says, hey, we're gonna outlaw praying to the one true God because I'm worried what's gonna happen if people follow God instead of following me, their king. And Daniel prays anyways as he knows who his God is. Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel a whole vision and gives him courage to face the leaders of his day. Jeremiah, Jeremiah is fearful, right? This is where we get the hide in the cave part. But he listens to his instructions from God and still goes forward. Prophetic posture means having courage in the face of power. And I think it's one, because sometimes power needs someone to show up to them. But also this, this is a really important role of prophets when they face down power, it's this. They remind those in power that no matter how powerful you get here on earth, there's always someone else who's more powerful. Prophets serve the role of saying, no matter how powerful you think you are on this side of heaven, on the other side of heaven, there's one who's more powerful than you can ever imagine, and that's who we serve. That's so important for us to remember. Finally, and this is one of the things that I think the prophets are most well known for, but we don't talk about it, and it's awkward. We don't talk about it because it's awkward, even though it's what the prophets talk about more than almost anything else. It's compassion for the hurting. Compassion for the hurting. The Israelites were, were placed into exile multiple times because of things like worshiping idols and not caring for the poor. Prophets were, were the, the canary in the coal mine, really, for the people of God and how they cared for the least of these. 
right? If you're leading a temple service and a prophet comes up speaking scripture really, really well and says, woe to you, like that's the moment where you're like, we might have missed the mark. Like that was the point of the prophets. I think this, the mark of followers of God is their willingness to care for the least of these. So how do we, how do we, how do we get our minds there? And I think it's this, we put our minds on the kingdom of God. A couple years ago, though, I was talking about a trap that it's easy for us to fall into when we put our minds in the kingdom of God. It's really easy to put our minds on the kingdom of God and say, well, whatever happens on earth doesn't matter. Like, God's going to make everything new. And so why do, like, God, Jesus said we're always going to have the poor. God's going to make everything new one day. So really, like, we're, we're, we're kingdom people. We're not earth people. And it's a way for us to not feel bad about what's happening here on earth. Like when I've had that posture, it's been one of like, I know I'm probably not doing enough to love the least of these and I want to make myself feel better about it. So I'm going to say, well, it's okay. It'll all be made new. And that is not what we are called to do. In fact, when, when the disciples ask Jesus, how should we pray? One of the things that he says in there, right, is, is you, you should pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As people who follow Jesus, we should be so focused on the kingdom of God and on trying to bring heaven here, right, on Tacoma as it is in heaven. That's what we should be trying to do. And if you're like, that seems impossible, yeah, I think that's the point. We have to depend on God, and just because that seems impossible doesn't mean that we're, we're supposed to back away from it. I think we're supposed to lean in hard to it. It's interesting, I think a lot of times when we're looking at brokenness in the city around us, we don't look to scripture, we look to political leadership. I've done that. It's interesting, if you look at, at political leaders traditionally in this country, they have a lot to say about brokenness in the city. And there, there are some really good aspects of both pieces of what they have to say, but they're, they're, not, they're incomplete. Right? So if you look to, to leaders on our, on our political right, they will say individuals often experience brokenness because of their own choices that they've made. And if they're in a tough spot, well, they still have their own choice and they can choose to not be in that situation. Here's where they're right. Like, individual choices, like, does exist. Like, we all have the ability to choose. We all have the ability to choose what, hap- what we do after something happens to us. But it feels incomplete, doesn't it? It feels incomplete. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'm like, oh, I, I like individual choice. Like, I get that. But then I'll, I'll go and I'll listen to a political leader on the left who will say, there are systems and structures that are broken and oppressive, and that is why people are in brokenness. Here's where they're right. Like, systems and structures, they're made by people. We put it on the wall out front. People are imperfect. And a system made by imperfect people will be imperfect. And there are, there are people in brokenness, there are people in desperate situations that have done nothing to put them there themselves. We have had broken systems throughout our history. That is a reality that we face. But also, like, people aren't powerless. And so it's frustrating where we can being back and forth, we can being back and forth, and, and the, our political leaders over here on the right, they'll say, man, if we just teach people better, if we train people better, if we teach people that good things happen from good choices, that's what I teach my kids, then there will be no more brokenness in the world. It's like, that's not how it works. And again, if we go over here, it's really easy to say, well, if we just fix the system, or we fix the people building the system, or we put the right people in charge, the right people in power, then we're going to have the best system, and then there's not going to be any brokenness anymore. That's not how it works either. Because on this side of heaven, we're always going to be broken. 
So what I love about the prophets is the prophets get to be in the spot in the middle where they go, yes, and. And they go, the prophets get to say, yes, you have woe to you, you have made bad choices. Church people, I'm looking at you first. That's what the prophets do. The prophets also say, yes, the systems and structures are broken. Church people, y'all built some of these, so maybe figure it out. Again, that's what the prophets do. But then the prophets also say this, but poor individual choices and poor systems and structures, these are symptoms. And if we treat the symptoms, we're never going to get to the root of the problem, and the root of the problem is our heart. The prophets say this, that if we fix our hearts, if we turn our hearts to God and to his word, then out of that will flow healing. Out of that will flow amazing people raised up to make good, healthy, wise choices. And it'll create people who who want to build structures that are built with everyone in mind, including the least of these. And out of the heart, out of posture of our heart going to God, we will see healing. Again, it won't be perfect because we're on this side of heaven, but we will see healing. As we go into Isaiah 58, we're going to read a little bit of it today. It's interesting, the prophets punch heavier than anyone else in regard to care for the poor. I've used this quote before, and and I want to say it again because I think it really applies to this text. I had a a prof in college who told me this. He said, John, a good sermon needs to comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, and not mix up the two. That's what Isaiah does in 58, so we're going to read it together. It says this, um, Isaiah's talking to the people of God who have been doing a religious activity on a regular basis because they think it's the right thing that God wants them to do and they think it looks good. And this is the words that God has for them through the prophet Isaiah. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying these are all performative gestures. And then he says what what a day of fasting really is in God's eyes. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? That's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy. We have a prophet of God saying, you can't dress in your Sunday best and say the right prayers and take communion and then go home and exploit the workers for the company you own. Saying your prayers aren't enough but it's how you treat people. That's a real measure of how you follow God. When we see texts like this, we wrestle with them. Sometimes when we encounter those who need care the most, we also wrestle with them. I had a, I had a pretty wrestle-heavy weekend with stuff like this about three weeks ago. There's a guy who's been homeless for at least four years that I've struck up a weird friendship with over the last two years. And I think a lot of times if you're, if you're engaging with, with individuals in the homeless community, you start to ask the question, am I helping or hurting? Am I helping because I keep pointing to services, keep pointing to options, keep pointing to things that they could do to, to get healthy? And, and if 
do I need to draw a hard line to push? And, and it's, if you're in a spot where you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, me either. So I had a hard weekend because someone who I've tried to reach out to for two years got really, really drunk, broke into a tenant space that we lease out to Young Life, got into a physical altercation, broke one of our windows and had cops called. People were hurt and I start to wrestle with the questions of what does care look like? Are we doing the right thing? Should we just put a hard line down? Should we not? And then two days later, <laughs> I come in on a Monday morning and that, that wall out there that says imperfect you know, community of Jesus followers, um, someone had written a message on there for us. I pulled the security footage and at 2 a.m., a homeless guy who I'd seen once or twice um, but never talked to us, came up and, and with a Sharpie, over the course of 45 minutes, wrote a message on the wall. And in it, he made some, some pretty bold accusations. It was well-written. Um, which is like, I'm like, when I'm correcting grammar on a homeless person's graffiti, like, <laughs> like that's a level of intelligence, right? Like, that's awesome. Um, but in it, he made some pretty bold allegations that as a church, we've missed the mark though we've ignored the homeless community. And we're in, we're in an area where we, just, we deal with, we get the opportunity to deal with homeless people a ton um, with the vacant land behind us. By the way, we're not selling the church. That's not what those yellow signs are. Um, like three people who know business were worried. Um, the vacant land behind us is going to eventually be affordable senior housing, which is awesome. But in the meantime, there's been people moving in and out. And so you said, there are people right there who you've missed the mark on. And how dare you not see me? How dare you not do enough? And um, I went through my normal responses on this. Band and community team, y'all can, can come forward as we do this. Um, but what, can I be honest? So we're doing this series. We have been planning to do this series, been planning to do this outreach stuff with Tacoma Rescue Mission. I walked in and I saw that message that said Anchor has literally done nothing to reach the homeless community. That accusation. I walked into Brian's office and I was like, I don't want to do the TRM thing anymore. I didn't want it to be seen as a response to, to what I felt was, was harsh accusations. I was like, we can't reward this. Like 15 minutes later, I was calmer. <laughs> Guys, this is why we do things in teams. Like Brian talked me off the ledge, brought me back to reality. And uh, this is one of the things I love about Brian as a leader is an hour later as a staff, we walked out there and prayed. We just said, God, we know your word. We know what we've done for the last couple of years to reach out to the least of these, all the different ways that we've done. But God, someone's hurting. Will you search our hearts? As a staff, we stood out there and we prayed. So God, will you search our hearts? Will you check our motives? Will you, will you let us know, is there more we can do? Is there less that we can do? Something different. God, I know I'm not supposed to take this auditorium and turn it into a homeless shelter, but like, what, where's the line? Help us understand, God, what are you calling us to do? And I walked away from that time of prayer. Guys, prayer is so helpful. Like I walked away from that time of prayer and I was like, we have done a lot as a church. We had an individual reach out to a staff member and say, hey, I'm, I'm housing insecure. Struggling with substances. I'm struggling with housing. I need help. Guys, within 24 hours, we had a place for him to stay. We had a ride every week to celebrate recovery ministry on Wednesday nights and we had a ride for him to church. Like That's so cool that that's who this community is. And there's this tension, though, right, of like, that is who Anchor is, but there's also this person who lives near us that is hurting and doesn't feel seen. 
And so I, I said, God, this person's hurting. They don't feel seen. What do we do with that? God, will you search my heart in this season? As we lean in and say, what would you have us do? And this isn't the end all be all, but we know right off the bat we're doing two things to partner with Tacoma Rescue Mission. It's important to know this, just as an organizational person here, it's important to know this. Why do we partner with Tacoma Rescue instead of doing our own thing? Because they've been here for so long, guys. Like, they love Jesus, and they love homeless, and they've been doing it in Tacoma for a while. So why would we try to create our own thing? So some of you got surprised by a Dropbox um, in the back because you didn't read the email, which I didn't either. Um, I was like, cool, we're doing that this week. And it's already, like, full. You're going to see touch cards on the way out that give more opportunities and more things to bring back every single week to help with the Tacoma Rescue Mission. Uh, something else really cool that you get to be a part of. How many of you guys have ever renovated your kitchen? Okay, my hand's down. I don't do that. Um, here's the thing about when you renovate your kitchen, I've been told. Um, you don't get to use it as well as you can for a while. And Tacoma Rescue has an amazing opportunity to renovate their kitchen. But they are choosing, and we are choosing as well, that like we don't get to just say, sorry, every single person who's homeless that got food here, you just don't get food for three months. Guys, you want to know a fun, like, kind of secret about Anchor? We have a commercial kitchen. Like, we have a full commercial kitchen in the building. And so we got to be a part of saying, hey, Tacoma Rescue, like, you got kitchen space here. And not only do you have kitchen space, like, there are people here who are going to prep meals and then bring them over so that homeless people don't have to learn to come to Anchor inside of the rescue mission, right? Like, so that people can get food where they're supposed to get food every single day still. And so there's a ton of opportunities. There's a ton of opportunities for you to sign up and be like, I want to help prep meals. I don't cook. I cook like once a month. I could do the stuff that they're asking us to do. So like you don't need to be an expert level chef. Like we would love for you to jump in and just be the hands and feet of Jesus making food for those who need it most in the season. On your way out, you're going to see two touch cards that talk about both those opportunities. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do though before we talk about communion. Over the next four weeks, will you do two things? Number one, will you go home, talk with whoever you make decisions with about jumping in with one of those things with Tacoma Rescue? Either bringing back stuff or helping make meals. Second is this, and this one's harder. I want to be honest, like this is a join me in this because this is where I'm at. Will you join me in searching our hearts in this series? Will you join me in asking God the scary question that we never want to ask him because I don't like the answers, but I need to ask him, which is, God, show me my brokenness. God, show me where I am guilty of the first half of this verse in Isaiah. God, show me where I do things on this stage for performance, not because you've called me to. God, show me where my religion has run short because it's not what you've asked me to do. Will you join me in searching our hearts as we go through this series? I think we're going to be better for it. I think this church is going to be better for it. I think the city is going to be better for it. Here's the thing. There's going to be a moment where you search your heart and ask God to show your own brokenness, and he does, and you don't like it. And you're going to, the temptation is to feel that I can't come back from that mistake. I can't come back from that ugliness that God just showed me in my own heart. That's why we're doing communion right now, guys. Communion is something that we do every week. It's a religious thing we do every week that has ultimate meaning. Because when we see that brokenness, we get to know and remember and understand that God says this, that Jesus, his body was broken, his blood was shed for our brokenness. And he rose again three days later like we celebrated last Sunday. And that because of that, 
we have hope and that brokenness doesn't define us. I love that we do communion every week at Anchor. I love that it's a part of our, our real religion of following Jesus here at Anchor. And the spirit of the real religions here is I wanna say this so clearly about communion. Communion at Anchor is for anyone who has said yes to Jesus even today. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to be a certain way. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to have your life together. Communion is available for every single person who has said yes to Jesus, even if that's this morning. If you have said yes to Jesus, there is room at what we call the Lord's table for you. One of our core factors of anchor is this, is we wanna open our doors as wide as possible, lifting what's central, just Jesus, as high as possible. Communion is a perfect example of that. So as the band plays this next song that talks about freedom that we see in God, that talks about freedom that God set up for his people, I'd encourage you to take a moment and then come to one of the stations in the front or the back of the room and take communion. Let me pray for you guys. God, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you so much for your word that you've given us. God, I thank you for your word that you've given us through the prophets, even when I don't like it. God, I pray this, that we would love our city so well. And God, I also pray this, that we as a church would search our hearts. That we'd be sure of who we are and who you are, but that we'd be open to change, God. That we'd be open to you pointing out the areas in our life where we can grow closer to you. The areas in our life where we can take hold of your word even further. So God, I thank you for everyone that's here. I thank you for the freedom that you offer simply by saying yes to your son, Jesus. God, again, I pray over this room. I pray over this city. As we look in the next month, God, give us eyes to see what you see. In your name, amen.